Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. What's up, everybody, and welcome back. If you're a regular listener, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I would not be doing this over seven years and 360 episodes later if it wasn't for you and your support. And with over 10,000 downloads a month now, we're growing like crazy, and I'm working with my team to level up the quality and quantity of the content we're pumping out. We're currently working on a new weekly intentional growth newsletter that is going to be the central repository for the additional weekly content that we're going to be creating. And we're, we're also going to be leveling up our LinkedIn and YouTube accounts and leaning into Twitter for ongoing dialogue to be having discussions with our avid supporters, the people that are uh, in our ecosystem and community. I guess it might be threads, but at the moment, it's going to be Twitter. So if you want to engage in the conversation, check out our LinkedIn or YouTube or Twitter. And if you're new to the show, I appreciate you. Welcome. Our definition of intentional growth, the name of the show, is purposeful action towards a clearly identified outcome. The goal of the show is to help entrepreneurs create a framework for decision making so you can align your long-term business and personal. Super important. Those two business and personal long-term goals and align them with your short-term decision-making so that way you can make the entire journey of owning and running a business and entrepreneurship worth it. I laugh because a lot of times we're not really sure. And if you're here listening, you might be wondering, what do I need to do to make it worth it? Don't worry, you're in the right spot. The last thing I want for you is to get stuck in a point where you want something different out of your life or your business and you don't know how to get out of your situation because you're financially trapped in the company because you don't understand how the business impacts your cash flow or your net worth because you're not sure how much the company's worth, when and how you can monetize it and how it impacts your situation. The framework is exactly what I wish I would have had before selling our family company for over eight figures and my first two failed startups. The point of the five intentional growth principles and why I like the word framework is it helps you answer some of the most important questions without someone telling you what to do, but you can then make the decision yourself by by using these five principles and a decision-making framework to answer questions like, can I take distributions out of the business without impacting the growth of my company? Or can I afford to hire that key rockstar executive for over 200 grand while maintaining my salary, working capital, and funding the growth of the company? What is the right type of capital fund in the growth of our company? Investors, bank debt, is it you know some sort of private equity firm that's growth investment versus you know a full buyout? Can you afford to launch that next product or service? And should you buy that company or sell yours? These are insanely important questions that we often don't have a framework to decide, is it gonna get us closer to our goal or further away? Which is the point of this show and the intentional growth framework. And to give you some context of whether this works or not, to date, the intentional growth framework has helped over 500 entrepreneurs via the Intentional Growth Academy learn how to view their company like a financial asset. And I got to imagine that we don't track this, but at least a fourth of them have transacted since going through the material. And we have dozens of case studies of people that have made so much additional value when they went to monetize their asset and they got what they wanted because they knew exactly what they wanted and what their company was worth. 
And for what it's worth, my mission is to educate over 10,000 entrepreneurs and business owners through the academy and then help increase the cash flow valuation of over a billion dollars in combined client revenue through our financial dashboard and CFO services, just to kind of give you the overall mission that our cone is on. And if you're interested in diving more into the intentional growth framework, access the intentional growth starter kit below in the show notes. It has everything you need to do to get started, the five videos and the five principles, as well as the financial scorecard to help grade you on how well you're running the company like a financial asset. And that brings us to today's guests, which are two brothers, Rob and Colin Riley. And they were born and raised in an Irish Catholic background, made an impressive leap into entrepreneurship. Rob took the first step and bought a truck accessories company right after college. Colin joined him shortly after, and they turned it into a thriving business that they later sold to the management team. And they briefly then dipped their toes into the golf cart market super important for later on in their story. And they stumbled into this tax credit program that boosted their sales, generating over a million dollars in profit from just 250 cars. And don't worry, that's just the beginning. They then share how they navigated the highest peaks of their entrepreneurship journey, where they were doing over $250 million in residential real estate while buying around 15 houses a month at their peak, right as the financial crisis hit, which then took them to their lowest valleys, where they ended up having to trade in their Range Rover keys for a bike. And we'll be diving into the details of how they managed to sell over 10,000 golf carts after going broke, where they legitimately generated over $75 million in revenue in just 45 days. Truly, they were broke, then they sold 10,000 golf carts and $75 million in 45 days. And then how they took that huge comeback and then went back into real estate investing, building a portfolio of over 1,000 houses, and what really excites me about Robin Collin is their ability to stay grounded intentionally through the ups and downs. That is not easy. And despite their significant financial successes and failures, they've maintained what Rob and Colin call an eternal focus on faith, family, and intentional living, making sure that they're doing everything for the right reasons, which makes them a perfect guest for this show. In this episode, we're going to be exploring their unique approach to business, their resilience in face of adversity, and their valuable insights on finance and business and personal and how to make sure that you don't sacrifice everything that you've built. So buckle up. It's going to be a fun conversation and there's a lot of laughters and a lot of uh, ups and downs. So without further ado, here are the Riley brothers, Colin and Rob. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Rob and Colin, how are we today? Fantastic. Happy to be here. I'm so excited, guys. I, uh, so for the listeners, I, uh, I spoke to uh, Katina Kohler's Vistage Group in Arizona. I gave my you know, a whole spiel for three hours. And then Rob and Colin told their 10 minute story. And I was like, I think yours is way better than mine. <laughs> and so uh, I, I just honestly, I was laughing, but also there were so many great themes guys about like just the grind and the grit and the peaks and valleys, as you had mentioned, Rob and uh, Colin, as we were uh, kind of having a conversation about this, but why don't we just start with, you know, how did you guys end up becoming entrepreneurs. And I, I phrase it like that guys now, because I used to say, how'd you start? Be, how, how'd you plan on becoming an entrepreneur? And like 90.9% of the people are like, 
or 9.9 out of 10, we're like, we, we never planned on it. <laughs> so I'm curious on like, how did you fall into entrepreneurship? I know there's a cra- crazy ride that we're going to go through, but we'll kind of give everybody the 50,000 foot view first. I would say our background, you know, we're, we're four kids within five years, Irish Catholic family, dad's a doctor, the most non-business guy you could think of, you know, uh, you wouldn't want to send him to negotiate a deal because he's just going to you know, lay over for you. So, uh, but yet three of the four kids invest in real estate pretty, pretty early on. And one thing I was thinking about with Rob, um, when you asked that question, we were in Weeblos and Cub Scouts. And this is, this, this is a good image. My brother has a great idea. Let's make some money. And who does he use? Me. So, uh, you know, I'm a younger brother. I put on my little Cub Scout outfit and he sends me door to door asking for donations. <laughs> And, uh, oh, that's awesome. and they were like, one family was like, well, what is this for? And I was like, I don't know, conventions. Things? <laughs> I mean, so we were liars early on. No, I'm kidding. We, uh, but we, I think we just had a desire to kind of cut our own path, you know, uh, more real estate speculation had accumulated more wealth in the U S and we always wanted to do that. That was kind of the, the end goal. Didn't know how to get there. But in between kind of college and, and real estate, I think there were some tracks that we, you know, we cut our own teeth on and, and took some risks and made some money. So it was, it was pretty Why real estate for you guys? What was the real estate the, uh, gravitational pull? It's interesting. You know, I think the, well, that first seed capital from the, the Weeblows venture, um, <laughs> my dad caught on to that and uh, had us donate that to the church. So that, that was, that was, uh, <laughs> that's so that great. Really that tale. Uh, we were both. We went to Baylor, and we were entrepreneurship majors, so we definitely had the bug from the beginning that we wanted to summer jobs. We do you know, roof coating and stuff like that, so we just kind of had it in mind that eventually we wanted to chart our own path. Um, the first business I bought was with an SBA loan. <clears throat> um, friend of the family had a company who's moving out of state, so we wanted to sell it. <clears throat> Sorry, <clears throat> so. I didn't have any money. So basically I got my real estate license and built a commission in the deal. So the commission was about 20 grand more than the down payment. So, so you finance your own commission. That's fantastic. No money down, love it. The true no money down transaction. So <laughs> That's awesome. We bought about first million and a half dollar business, uh, right after college. And then, uh, uh, what was the business Rob? Uh, it was a, Truck accessories company, camper shells, uh, big cab over campers. That's I'd never owned a pickup truck in my life, so I had to learn all the all the right terminology and stuff to do it. But it had a great team, and so I uh, had a manager in place that had been there for 20 years, and so he was pretty pissed that I was coming up as a new owner. So I made a deal. How in God's name did you think that this was a, a, a strategy at that early age, like to buy an SBO and buy a business, especially one that you're not, because I've watched people, Rob, where they kind of flop into it, where they were in the business and the industry for a long time, found a way to get an SBA loan, then buy it. And so like, what was the thought process of like, when you went about doing that? You know, um, I've been looking at a number of different businesses of, of, for buying businesses. And then the friend of the family kind of came along. Got it. Um, but I liked the idea of an established stable business that was throwing off 350,000 net income that could support that. So for me, it was kind of a safe first play and I had a great existing management team. So mm-hmm. I made a deal with that manager that if he, you know, uh, stayed with it and ran the place, I'd help him buy it and get an SBA loan after five years. So ended up helping him get an SBA loan and cashing me out 
but no kidding. Built in exit plan from day one. That's that's very rare. That's awesome. That's great. Gave us a stable base of operations. My brother joined me about halfway through. I was, uh, you know, my college summers, I was selling books door to door. So, you know, uh, I'm the youngest of four kids to get out of school. And my dad's paid for, you know, law school and nursing school. And I tell dad, I'm not going to graduate this summer because I got a great job. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to sell books door to door. He said, that's a scam. Don't do it. You know, I said, dad, I've met people that have made five grand and more and I'm going to do it. And so grateful I I did that that summer. I said, dad, I'm even going to pay for my my last semester at Baylor. I believe so well, I'm going to do well. So I, I worked hard that summer and didn't make any money. No, I'm kidding. I, uh, <laughs> the, uh, it, it was a natural thing for me. So yeah, first day had 10 customers and was like, wow, this is great. Made about, I think 17,000. So uh, back in the nineties and, but the money gets spent. But what I learned at the kitchen tables sitting next to, you know, Mrs. Jones was just that, that cycle of selling, how to build rapport, and uh, really thrived in that environment. So I was recruiting and training. And then I decided, you know, I was in another business actually and decided my wife and I thought we really feel like we're led to go into business with Rob. So took a pay cut, really uh, showed up. You know, I don't know anything about truck accessories. A guy walks in and goes, uh, hey, can you show me some toppers? I said, sure. Rob, do we have any toppers? I had no idea what a topper was. Well, a topper is a camper <laughs> And that, like, that's all the business did was sell camper sales. There's like 300 of them on the lot. So it was humbling. I was like, yeah, let me, let me get right on that. Um, so we, uh, we didn't really have a plan necessarily. It was a good stable business, but it gave us, I think in entrepreneurship, we learned team first, idea second. Uh, it's all about the team. Who's doing what? Do you have synergy? You know, right seats, right trust. And we literally didn't have a plan going forward. And so uh, I think the first idea really came within about three to six months. Yeah. So Arizona in 99 uh, had a tax credit, $10,000 tax credit for a golf cart. It was a state tax credit. So, you know, higher income earners could qualify for it. We found out. About- so, Rob, I, I know, I know, right? Or know where you're going with this, Rob? Do we want to give some context of why you guys started this? I don't know if we want to go back to like the, re- or, or was this before that? This is before. Okay. This is way before. Oh no, shit! Yeah. Man. So this is oh, in 1999. Wow. This was kind of the prelude that, that kind of. Oh, I missed that part the first time. Got it. Cool. So keep going. Sorry. So you know, we found out about it. You know, a few days before the end of the year, uh, had my dad run out and buy you know a ten thousand dollar golf cart that was free. Um, really and, nice ones. It looks like a little Lincoln has seatbelts and blinkers and taillights and street legal. <laughs> but basically, they uh, then Arizona extended the tax credit till June. Um, so we had six months uh, in June. So we started calling around. We finally found a uh, none of the big manufacturers would sign up a couple of kids that you know were fresh out of college and, and didn't really have a golf cart experience. We found a manufacturer in California. Um, to make one for us, like they didn't, they couldn't offend their other dealers, so we had them make a stripped down unit for us that was not in competition with their dealer network. And uh, Colin basically put it on the back of a you know trailer and, and a truck and showed up at my dad's, all my dad's friends' doctor's offices. Yeah, this is really kind of pre-internet. So uh, Rob's like. I- what do you think? I'm like, I think I can sell these. You know, we can sell them. <laughs> I just but love it so much. But let's let's order the first ten. And so they required was it the first five? I think 
No, first ten. First ten. They 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 wanted a uh, a wire, you know. So Rob wires a check, uh, you know, sends a wire, and then and then stops payment on it. I I panic. <laughs> what the hell are we doing? I mean, we thought they're going to change the law. We're stuck with all these expensive golf carts nobody wants. And so I said, Rob, I think I can sell them. So I basically um, went to the higher earner individuals, uh, showed up at their their office. And I'd say, hey, did I catch Dr. Rothbaum between patients? I'm Dr. Riley's son. So they're like, okay, you're not a pharmaceutical rep. You don't have donuts. You know, you must be a friend. So they're trying to place you. Yeah, like, what's, what's yeah, going yeah. on here? <laughs> I look out of place. So he comes out and I go, look, I, you're definitely not in the market for a golf cart. I'm, I'm convinced of that. But I've got one parked out front. And for the next couple of months, the state of Arizona is going to hand you the keys because you're already paying the taxes. So now you can actually redirect where those tax dollars go. You're going to pay $10,000 state tax. And so people are like, well, what am I going to do with that? I said, it doesn't matter. You donate it to the church or the synagogue or do whatever you want, you know? Um, and so slowly we began to sell the first 10. Well, let's order another 10 and then another 10. And within four months, we sold, you know, 250 of them and made a million dollars, you know? <laughs> I love it. Did, did Rob, did you have the trucking accessory business at the same time? Yeah, it was at the same time. So okay. that was kind of running itself. I mean, I was more involved on the, you know, the product and pricing and that kind of stuff and the, the financial side of it, but daily it ran itself. So it, this one gave us a great base of operations to pursue these other Got things. It. But this, I mean, we had no showroom. It was literally me in a truck driving around. And, and, and I was not showing it to people that were interested in golf carts. I was showing it to people with a high income. That, you know, yeah, so yeah. my double income, double physician uh, couple said, we'll buy three or four of them. And like, it just made sense, you know. So we always look back at that experience and thought, you know, had we been a little bit more sophisticated, could we have taken a better swing at that, made a lot more money? So that was in 2000. And uh, so we made a little bit of money. I think uh, we continued to do Arizona Truck Outfitters, sold that within a couple of years, sitting on some some cash. And then uh, our sister out of Texas said, have you heard of this We Buy Ugly Houses company? And we said, no, we have no idea. They said, she said, it's Homevestors. It's a, it's a franchise. And, you know, being arrogant, we're like, well, we're not really franchise kind of people, you know? And she's like, buying real estate at a discount. And we thought that is brilliant because we knew what a mortgage was. Did we know anything else? That's about, about it. That's about it. So, I mean, that was the extent <laughs> of our knowledge. So, we paid uh, 50000 bucks in 2003, flew out to Dallas for a week of training, uh, surrounded by people that had spent their lives in this business. You know, they had been real estate agents or contractors, uh, mortgage guys, whatever, and quickly realized that it was a lead generation mechanism where you would advertise, a national advertise, the franchisee pays for the advertising, leads come in, and then it's sitting at the kitchen table with Mrs. Jones again trying to close a deal. You know, so that was familiar to me. Um, I, I had to learn how to, you know, how to value a property, how to establish, you know, comp, you know, analysis and, and uh, backup repairs. But that was, that was kind of our process. And we, we went head first into that. It was zero to hundred miles an hour pretty fast. Yeah. Did, did you guys, did you guys read like think, uh, think and grow rich, like the rich dad, poor dad. I was thinking about like your dad being a, uh, you know, phys- it sounds like it was like he was a physician, but like, Going like your your parents like who are these kids like you know we had jobs and like they're out like just doing random things like how did that all come to be? <laughs> yeah, you know I, I think the uh, they knew that we were interested in entrepreneurship 
early on. And so they're definitely supportive of it. My dad definitely invested, co-invested alongside of us on a, a number of deals. But just to give a little context, our dad raised in, you know, born and raised in, in the Irish Catholic boroughs of Brooklyn, always identified better with the middle of the lower class, just that, you know, even as yeah, a physician, yeah, yeah. as a surgeon, take it, to, it was taking a subway an hour and a half each way to go to Fordham a day. You know, so he's reading and he's learning and he had the love of learning, worked in a factory one summer and thought, oh, I get to learn new things. And so then he gets into Columbia Medical School, surprise, you know, and his professors are like, you, you, you could go anywhere. You should go to Columbia and meets my mom there and comes out. So there was always a little bit of a separation between it was almost like different planets a little bit. He was a yeah, yeah. dad. He was 32. I, I think he had a hard time identifying with us on some level because you, you want to give your kids what you don't have, but then you realize it's your life experience that taught you who you are, you know, and, and in a way you're kind of robbing your kids of that experience because struggle is good, right? So we didn't yeah. have that struggle. We had our own struggles. There's always struggles in life. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. so I think dad applauded it because it was so outside of his DNA that he just thought it was marvelous that we, we, we stepped into this head first. So you guys start, you guys start going into real estate then. What was the conversation? I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of like the chatter back and forth with your parents. Like, see, so you, you've sold the business, you're getting into real estate. And I, I mean, I don't know where in the, uh, the path you guys went to ask them for money. Like, is in like, uh, I mean, are they like, are they that bought in at this point or do they watch you do it a couple yeah, times? I mean, real estate's tremendously capital intensive. So you can have a million bucks in the bank on Monday and be scrambling for dollars by Friday, you know, depending which deals you find. And Colin's skill set as far as buying, uh, closing deals really came into play there because it was, like you said, once a phone rang, you were on your own. I mean, the franchise is a lead generation system. But once that phone rings, so I think the first year we bought, it was halfway through the year. So I guess we bought 50 properties, then 150, then 180. So we're buying probably 15 to 20 something houses a month. Yeah, I, I recruited guys that I, I had sold books with back in the day. Same thing. They understood that. And then I think Rob had great foresight with like how to get creative financing. Our dad did provide a half a million dollar line of credit, which was helpful you know, but you burn through that. That's how you guys started that snowball. I mean, yeah. truly with a half million dollar line of credit. I mean, yeah. like into, wow. Yeah. And, and, and really it's, it's several businesses in one. It, it's, it's the acquisition, have, having to buy right and make your money on the buy. And then it's learning construction. How do you hire contractors? How do you deliver to the market, you know, a finished product? What, how do you go too far? Do you go not far enough? You make all those mistakes along the way. Are you sanding cabinets or do you rip them out and replace them? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and then disposition, how do you, you know, how do you time things so that you have a pipeline that's constantly kind of replenishing? And it was, it was like drinking from a fire hose and we became the number one franchisee in the country. So we're, we're going to conventions and, and we gave the applause to our team. It was so good at, you know, we assembled these amazing people, but we'd be the, the breakout session speakers and, uh, people would come and, and follow us and, learn because other people would be struggling. The same guy could get the same lead. One guy makes 50 grand. The other guy loses money, right? Because you're negotiating right, right. yourself what you're paying for that house. And it, 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 is, a, it, it is a dance. And then, you know, how yeah. much do you put into the property? So we, we just kind of learned that we were actually pretty good at it. Um, 
then the music stopped. Well, we'll break down your guys' roles. And I got to give some context, guys, because so I have twin daughters. I don't know if you caught that when we were uh, when I was down there. So like when you said, Rob, the, like your whole uh, we blow thing. <laughs> so I my daughter, Zoe, she's for sure the one that's like, hey, Ev go over this fence, go, this is, I can guarantee you this is going to happen. Go over that fence, go into that fridge, get the beer, come back over it. And so, and Everly would be like, sure. And so like, I know that (laughs) it's like, they're great for each other. I'm curious in your guys' roles, like how did you guys, was there communication of your, the different roles and skill sets or because you guys have been different yin and yang for your whole life? Like how did, how did that come to be as far as like your roles and how you guys work together? It's a great question. I, I suppose it's mutual respect. Like I think there's nobody better at executing in sales than my brother. Like it's accurate. I mean, he's phenomenal at it. And Rob's a guy that stands at the, the bow of the ship, you know, with his telescope, uh, you know, searching for distant destinations that nobody else has in their sights. So That's awesome. it, it was a little intuitive, but I remember we had a business coach doing personality profiles and temperaments, and this came into play where he loves to spitball ideas. I mean, he can live in his head 24-7, you know. So you know, life is a puzzle, and his, his job is to kind of solve it, you know, and come up with new mousetraps. And uh, executing is maybe not not his forte, but but he's the dreamer. And so he's giving us some ideas during the, the uh, Arizona Truck Outfitters days. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Yeah. Well, you know, two hours later, I've got a team meeting, and we're, like, talking about it. <laughs> he's like, no. Well, I was just, I was talking, I was thinking out loud. <laughs> uh, don't do that. So we, we, we did kind of learn to stay in our own lanes. And, and I, and I think, you know, as my, my parents always used to say, marriage were designed to grind, rub the rough edges off each other. And there's some overlap. And I think we make each other better. It's true synergy. Two plus two is 10. And, and, uh, we've really never had a debate or discussion about money and, and this sort of thing. So there's, there's, uh, that's awesome. Trust. Well, that's awesome. And, there, and, there, and the reason I was bringing that up, guys, is because, you know, if you remember, recall from the workshop, we were talking about leadership roles versus equity. And so many people get those all swirled together. And it sounds like you're there. The roles are kind of clear as far as how you guys were both structured. It's so like, as you guys are rolling, like that snowball, like my God, I, like when you're, what do you say? 15 houses a month, Rob? Like that's, that's a pretty intense snowball. And that started in what, 2000, early 2000, you were saying? 2003 to 2008. So we, we really couldn't miss. I mean, if, to think of the market in 2003, four, five, right? You're, you're buying a tight deal and suddenly making 50 or 80 grand on it. And it's, you know, we just rode the market. There was, I, I wouldn't have articulated this at the time, but there was probably some pride in there and some like, you know, we're untouchable and we have the golden touch and, and yeah, it's a team effort, but you know, we really got this. And 2008, um, it's like somebody unplugged the treadmill and, and we're in full spread. And we knew the market was going to change. We knew our, a lot of our buyers were subprime buyers. You know, uh, when, when the guy uh, at the bank, the bank teller is telling you about the third uh, rental house they're on, or, you know, you're like, this doesn't make sense. You know, uh, it's got to come to an end. And so that buyer pool evaporated. Meanwhile, you know, there's half-built subdivisions all over town. Mm-hmm. And it was such a fast demise. I, I don't think the charts really accurate. I think in really Arizona, 25% of the employment economy was tied to real estate. 
So holy shit, man! Wow, it was a huge percentage. So when that stopped, it wasn't just the bricklayers and the drywallers that were out of a job. It's it affected everything, everything. Furniture and you, you name everything. Lenders, yeah. escrow, title, you know, guys at Home Depot, and, and so so it affects the economy. Values plummet, but then everybody's income comes down. And the rental houses we had about 160 of them. We we think we have millions of dollars in equity in there. We haven't really you know pulled that money out, and our rates are a little high because it's six or seven percent. Rents get lowered. We're getting squeezed, you know, as much as 150 grand a month, you know, of negative cash flow. And, and prices were dropping so much. I, I think you know when they give those national figures that fell 20 something percent, it masks the reality of the bloodbath that it wasn't certain neighborhoods um a few years so there was a house that we sold for around two hundred fifty thousand. that uh so that we would have sold that in 06 or 07 i bought it back from the courthouse steps in 2010 or 11 for 50 thousand. oh my god some of these neighborhoods a lot of the neighborhoods that we bought in were hit 75 80 percent they're just well, and like, and, and that's on the equity side and the cash flow. You already mentioned, Rob, that the cash flow your guys is, is an industry, which I'm aware of is already you know, like a roller coaster. And then you throw in a shit storm like this, you know, going back to Colin's analogy of your like little eye, uh, eye gazing into the future. How did this start to trickle into your brain of like, oh, okay, what do we got going and how fast did that happen? And you know, like, I, what did that happen? We're standing too close to the chalkboard to really see it. Like, I mean, we should have known. We were in the best place to know. I mean, we we had a mortgage broker. He used to call us upset at least once a month because he had a first payment default, which means somebody we sold a house to never made a single payment. They're buying them on these. Oh my gosh! And he was only he only cared because his commissions got clawed back if they didn't at least make one payment. So he called pissed off that somebody hadn't. You know, he was like, "Get in touch with these people. Have them make a payment." But the fact. It's so easy to see in retrospect how fragile the system was. But at the time, you know, people would call us on a house that we had listed for 200000 and offer us 170 and we'd tell them where they could shove it and, you know, how dare you, you know, hang up the phone. Mm-hmm. Four months later, <clears throat> are you still interested in that lovely property? <laughs> <laughs> the prices just kept going down. So here we had, like, Cone said, I don't know, 50 to 60% equity in the properties at the start. And we ended up underwater on 160 properties. It, it, it was a struggle. It was a struggle to, to the ego, the reputation, feeling like you're not smart and you can't make any money. I mean, it was, and it was probably stifling for Rob. I think it was hard because there was just not a lot of end in sight. And so he, could, he couldn't look uh, at the environment and think, let's jump in the trenches and make this work. Because he was like, I, we got to do something. So... I was kind of in there unwinding liabilities as best we could. You know, our dad had signed on the bank line. So the thought of tarnishing his reputation. So we're basically selling houses just to pay off debt. And uh, my Land Rover key uh, was turned in because our, my lease was up. And uh, and I owed so much money to so many people. I thought, I'm, I'm going to ride my bike to work, you know. And so the kids thought it was fun in the summer. Hey, we're going to ride our bike to dad's office and get exercise. We didn't. We couldn't really afford a car. I mean, it was like... You know, it was just that bad. Um, I think you guys actually said when I saw you, I met you guys, it was like catching a falling knife and that, that 
that, that analogy is still is still stuck in my head. Yeah, and it, and we got we got stung to the point. There's some peers we have; they still haven't recovered from from what happened in Tucson in '08. So um, let's just say it was a spiritual awakening for us because you uh, you learn that you really don't control circumstances. You learn that uh, there's peaks and valleys in everybody's life, and the merit of a man is is in that moment. You know, when you're really being crushed, how do you respond? Are you faithful? Are you dedicated? Are you perseverant? And it, it was a true, true test to our core. Uh, we're renting our personal houses out uh, to baseball players here for spring training, you know, furnished rentals before it was kind of cool, just, just, to, just to pay bills. And uh, it seems like it was an eternity, but it was really about a year and a half period. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, Rob, is, I give him the freedom, go dream, go do what you want to do. And you were talking to a buddy uh, in 09, which was kind of our, our lowest point where we're really struggling and looking for a new opportunity. Yeah, and I'll, I'll echo what Colin said. I mean, they, you know, you go from helping people in distress and dealing with that population that you're the one getting phone calls from creditors. And it, it was tremendously, we never worked so hard for so little money. I mean, nothing worked. Like here, we had this long string of doing well and everything that we put ourselves into. Uh, we met some measure of success, uh, but then all of a sudden nothing worked. And we're riding our bikes to work. You know, we get a friend who call and ask us to go out to lunch. We sure we'll be there in 30 minutes. We're only a mile away. Yeah, but we got to ride our bike over there. <laughs> yeah, we'd show up drenched with sweat. They're like, what the hell's going on with you guys? <laughs> Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying the interview with Colin and Rob. One thing that I really appreciated about Colin and Rob is their perspective. And the one thing over my highs and lows of running and selling and turning around the family business, as well as my two first failed startups, as well as growing Arcona and managing all of our clients is a framework for perspective. Perspective is so damn important because if we understand the progress that we're making, even if we're doing hard work, I think we can all be excited to do the hard work. But if we have decisions in front of us, like launching that product or service or buying that company or selling the business, taking it out of the blue offer, hiring that CEO, how in God's name do we know whether we should or shouldn't be doing those things if we don't know if it's getting us closer to our goals and more specifically a valuable company that's, that's gonna give us the choices to do what we want when we want. The one thing I would recommend if you want that perspective is go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit. It's got five videos on the five principles as well as a scorecard that grades you on how well you're running the company like a financial asset. And that framework can then help you answer some of the questions that are sitting in front of you and help you tie those decisions to some long-term goal that may or may not be clear. And if you remember, intentional growth is purposeful action towards a clearly identified outcome. So go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, and I will leave you with the rest of the Riley Brothers and more gold nuggets and more laughter. So I have a couple questions on this because um, we were really close. You know, we had a quarter million dollar payroll every two weeks. We were actually financing our receivables. So we had no line of credit when we were turning the business around. <laughs> so like... Oh, like I like I think about what we went through and it was like probably a fraction of what you guys went through. The amount of emotional distress that we went through and I personally went through was real. And I'm just curious on how you both dealt with the like, I'm trying to think, bear with me for a second. So like you have that, like what, what we had is everybody like, oh, you have a hundred employees, 20 million in revenue. And you're, you know, you're an advertiser for the while and you're going, I don't have a pot to piss in. And I'm just trying to make everything work. And like, there's this like 
dichotomy of like what everybody thinks you are, what you know is going on, yet you're like to try and deal with it, you'd have to reconcile with everybody thinks. And it's just this horrible like ego, you know, dealing with like what everybody thinks, which I think, and as I watch entrepreneurs, it's always around the corner. And I think a lot of times we go 30% longer than we should have instead of just dealing with the shit. And I'm just kind of curious of like how you guys dealt with it emotionally of like that. I mean, the story we're joking around right now, and I don't know if you had that kind of, you know, positive, <laughs> like you gotta, you know, deal with it or how did you, I think, cope it, with it? I think it came in waves, you know, you, you don't realize that you were prideful because I think that, you know, we were involved in our churches and we were certainly, uh, felt that we were, had the right mindset until the rug gets pulled out from you and you're like, you realize how much of your self image had been tied up in the wrong things. You know, the ability to provide, the ability to lead and employ and create things. All of a sudden that's ripped from you and you realize what are the important things in my life? You know, on my deathbed, I'm not going to be recanting, you know, recounting the, my success stories. It's going to be my family and my faith. And so we really, it brought a lot of spiritual growth, uh, realignment, uh, realizing what's important on, not just on a service level, but truly. Mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, th there was, there were some low points. I mean, I, again, I think Rob, you know, had a hard time looking at uh, the mess and going, oh yeah, I want to get out there and pull a couple of weeds in a field of weeds. He, he just couldn't see the benefit of that. So I think there, I think there were some hard moments where it's like, we need to, we need to be looking beyond where we're at. And that's his strength. Uh, yeah. It was taxing on our marriages, taxing on, you know, we've got young kids. We're trying to shield them from this sort of thing. And, you know, Friday night was no longer, you know, going spending much money was ordering a pizza and, you know, getting a blockbuster and playing games and just made it work. But um, I think looking back, we go, I, I would have never learned what I do, what I know today had I not walked through that. But it was painful. It was hard. You never wish pain on yourself or your family. But, you know, on the on the other side of it, that you are a recipient of growth because of that. Mm -hmm. And you don't grow mm -hmm. when you're killing it. You really don't. Isn't that interesting, guys, too? Because uh, I get the question almost every time I do a workshop of like, what would you have done differently? And like, I, I'm curious and like how you guys, because like how you guys answer, because I like it's nothing because I enjoy my life and you don't, you're not your who you are without experiencing what you went through. You just hope that you're not in the middle of a, you know, a shitstorm while we're having this conversation. Right. And so I'm just kind of, um, where did you start to see some of that clarity? Rob, I mean, if you're the one looking forward, like how do you, you know, to Colin's analogy of all the weeds, how did you start like wrapping your head around, like how to deal with what you've got going on? Because you said some of your peers are not still recovered. Yeah. No, I would say it was um, more of a realization that if we are never successful again, it's okay. Like they, they can't eat me. Like my family, my kids, like the things that matter are going to be okay. My faith is stronger. I would never, like Colin said, nobody would choose to walk through it. But once you, and the benefit from being on the other side of it, I think there were times in the middle of it that you would, you know, you wanted out, you know. Uh, but looking in the rearview mirror at it, it's the single greatest growth period of my life. Way more than any of the successes. And 
it certainly in a way has made the future successes sweeter because they don't mean as much like the, the uh, it's not where my identity is. Uh, the market got worse before it got better. So we're, 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 we're thinking we're getting over this hump, still buying and trying to trade houses, buying on the decline. So I, I remember it, you know, there was not fresh ideas, an abundance of fresh ideas out there. Oh, let's do this. So I remember it being a struggle for Rob to kind of figure that out because that's where he shines the most. And uh, he found it eventually, thank God. And uh, yeah, I, I, I guess it was eternal optimism. We can get through this, you know, hand of the plow. Let's keep going. Um, and, you know, I think you set the tenor as a, as a man for the household and guys have broad shoulders. So just saying, Hey, we're going to get through this. And, and uh, but I, I find it interesting that our greatest, you know, opportunity in history came at our weakest point where you're, you're praying that your credit card fills your gas tank, you know, if you're driving something. Yeah. So, so part of the, um, Part of the, the uh, TARP bailout, I think it was Bush who passed it before he left office, uh, had a lot of different tax incentives. And so I was reading through that through the, the, that uh, the program because they had an electric vehicle uh, component, you know, for the Chevy Volt or Tesla or, or whatever. But in Ju- I think in July, the IRS made a ruling in July of 2009 that for the calendar year of 2009, it would apply to neighbor electric vehicles, which are golf carts, which is what we had sold back in 2000. <laughs> so it wasn't just any cart. They had a, there was a calculation that tax credit was based on the size of the, the batteries, basically the, the kilowatt potential of the, of the vehicle. And you had to get it certified. And we were dead broke. So, you know, I, so I was working every night. Yeah, uh, doing uh, uh conference calls and uh, with Chinese manufacturers trying to find a, a group in China that would customize a cart uh, with modified batteries to get the credit up higher. And we finally found a group and you had to get the car certified. So uh, we didn't have the money. To- so, Robert, Rob, are you doing this without, like, have you tested, or like, hey, Colin, had you tested the marketplace, like, go, or was it just the old idea in 99 that you're like, I know that this is a thing? We know free so- cells, free cells. And so the, the idea was that, that Club, free Car, cells. <laughs> Club Car, Easy Go, all these golf cart manufacturers, they had $8,000 golf carts that got a $4,000 credit. Great if you're in the market for it, not compelling to run out and buy 10 of them. We thought with Rob's idea of reverse engineering, how do we get the maximum battery capacity? Um, and we were the only ones to do it. And so we thought if we can get our, our credit high enough and our costs low enough, we can sell the car at a true break even for the Free. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I remember Rob calling US Battery and um, saying, hey, you, you guys make this particular battery and, and we'd like to probably buy some of those. They go, well, we only make a few hundred of those a year. That, for a floor sweeper, you know, hospital floor sweeper. (laughs) No, we're going to put them in golf carts. Well, no, nobody's ever done that. That's crazy. And so I think we're going to need about 80,000. Yeah, we're going to need a a lot of So, I mean, it it gave the uh, the carts the ability to go a 50-mile range, which was, you know, amazing. So, but between July and October, you know, we had to use our dad's credit card, fly a card over here from China, have it tested, have the IRS put their stamp of certification on it. 
And we basically got that. And I think we got our approval letter in mid-October of 2009. So that basically left, left us, what, 45 days or so to, to sell. Before you keep going, Rob, did, Colin, didn't you say in the story that I remember, like you had to go like the test drive that you didn't even have the money to go test drive? How what was that deal? Yeah, well, that's <laughs> fast forwarding a little bit, but basically, we had one car that we had air freighted over here, but we found we, we did professional photography in about a, a hundred different locations and, and scenery to, to to make a catalog of make it look like a fleet of cars. <laughs> But um, so with that one car in a brochure, Colin started the sales process. So we started with some buddies, some friends that bought it. But the general public had a hard time believing that it was real. So our sales were actually slow. Like free sounds great, but this has got to be a scam. It was people's natural reaction. Never talk to your yep. accountant. And, you know, so enough people were starting to buy. But then uh, I got a call from uh, uh, John, Stoss, John Stossel's producer. And I was like, I'll, ha I'll have someone call you right back. So I ran back to the office and had Colin call him. And uh, that started that whole chain of events. So we had, we had a website called freeelectriccar.com, you know. And, uh, and I'm spending time in Tucson talking to my buddies, you know, lengthy conversations. They're like, oh, let me think about it. And I'm calling their accountants. And I'm like, what am I doing? And I'm spending time with non-buyers. Like, if you don't want to buy it, don't buy it. You know, there's plenty of people that like it. It's car. free. It's, it's free. free. Yeah. How do we spell that out for you? So John Stossel goes, hey, I'm doing a new show on Fox Business. I'd like to fly you guys out. We kind of talked about how the government's wasting our dollars and how crazy it is, you know. Great. So we came out there, kind of kind of leveraged our trip, got on Anderson Cooper. So Anderson Cooper did a whole deal with Randy Kay with me driving around Columbus Circle and I'm doing this with a trucker and like a golf cart in New York City. It's bizarre, you know? And, and this is in December. It's like, you know, 18 degrees outside. So the whole thing suddenly gave us credibility. And then the ABC affiliate in, the, in New Jersey picked it up and did an interview. And so we have all these clips on, online. And But basically those ABC uh, clips are then repackaged and played in every small market, small market. Yep. You know, so they'll put their own reporter on there, then show the clip. So, it, so where in the 45 days, Rob, did this happen? So you, you said you had 45 days before I, I kind of sidelined this. We probably sold a thousand cars by then, which was great because that was enough to dig us out of the hole, but nowhere near, you know, where we wanted to be. But, so it was December like 8th in New York City. So um, do the whole tour and then, and then we put it on the website pretty soon. You just see sales going up, up, up and, uh, and to the point where it was just like a, a faucet and we're like, wow, what is going on? And then, and then we have to hire sales teams to answer phones. Initially I would forward my office phone to my cell phone at night, you know, and, and I'd get call. I got a call one morning at three in the morning, like drive electric, you know, and uh, so that with this nice, <laughs> nice uh, Southern guy. And he's like, well, you sure know a lot for a, for a call center. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm actually the owner. He's like, You're the owner. Why are you, are you out here in Georgia? No, I'm in Arizona. Well, it's three in the morning there. Like he couldn't believe that somebody was answering the phone at three in the morning. And he goes, you know, I had myself a pretty good, uh, pretty good year last year doing uh, you know, appraisals and surveying. And uh, I got a, about a $700,000 tax liability. I think I'd like to buy about a hundred of them. I'm like, oh, thank <laughs> God I answered that phone, you know? And so we get guys like that and they start wiring money in. And so it, it, it was, it was a little bit of a crawl. 
and kind of waiting for it. And then you felt like you're in one of those wind tunnels where you have like 10 seconds to grab as much money as you can, you know, and, and we know it's coming to an end because the deadline is December 31st. That's a great motivator for every consumer. They can't think about it. They have to like execute it. So, I mean, we were, um, we, we, how are you doing with the working capital here? Like how, you guys are broke, you're riding bikes. You had to like drive one car around to take pictures of one car. And now you're buying thousands of cars. Yeah. So, so basically we had, we had a manufacturer that was uh, you know U.S. manufacturer outsourced to China and um, we're releasing money and everybody, most of the consumers are paying on uh, customers are paying with a credit card. So PayPal was our merchant services. So suddenly they go, Hey, there, you know, there's 20 million or whatever it was at the time. Like we got to shut this down. We can't release money, you know, because we're on the hook. If you guys just pack up and leave, you know, and it, it seemed almost like a, like a scam. They couldn't believe what was happening. So we're like, that's our operating capital. We have, we need that money to buy cars and to, you know, ship them over. And so that turned an eight to 12 week promise. We'll have the car to you delivered to your doorstep. Well, we didn't know how many we'd sell. So, you know, we're at New Year's Eve parties and guys are like, hey, you got to talk to my buddy. And you're like, hey, I want five of these, you know, people are like, <laughs> so we're down there till like till midnight. And then we're like, well, in Hawaii, it's technically not midnight yet. So we keep working <laughs> uh, for those that are out of state. But basically every state, I think even North Dakota, we sold 435 cars or something. So and then the dust settles and we look and we've we've sold 10,000 cars. In, in, in about a forty-five to you know fifty-day period, and it's seventy-five million dollars of, of revenue, and we're like, wow! And then it's like after a storm, the dust settles, the phones aren't ringing. We look at each other and we go, well, now what do we do? And, <laughs> and, you know, because we hadn't built these cars yet, and so um, so, the, so the problem was enough people had wired money, so we had a few million dollars, uh, five or six million dollars of cash, but because so the deal that. Uh, PayPal worked out was they'd only release money when proof of the, with proof of delivery. So instead of firing up the factory nonstop producing cars, we'd have to wire the money, then produce some cars, put them on a ship, and then shut down production. Wait for those you know the ship to get here. We'd have to get them here, get them assembled, get them on trucks, get them delivered, then get proof of delivery, and then we could start the process again. So it took about a year to deliver the final car. Now, if so, slightly longer than the eight to twelve that uh, I'm assuming, uh, Colin, you <laughs> promised. So, yeah, yeah. how were you? Were, were you dance? Were you dancing like a monkey for uh, about eight months? We were doing. We were doing the two step, like you wouldn't believe. And 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 normal situation where you your guys are putting fifty grand on a credit card, and eight to twelve weeks comes and goes, you'd have about a ninety five percent, you know, uh, cancellation rate. Well. By the time that happened, um, it's April. People have already filed their taxes. They've already gotten the credit, you know, and they're just pissed. And all they can do is call and drop F-bombs and yell at our poor staff. There was like a revolving door with people, you know, working at the front desk. And we kept hiring people like, I can't take it anymore. You know, they walk out <laughs> crying. It's okay, you know, and, and like consoling people. Like, I, I, I'm happier working at, you know, staying at home and taking unemployment. <laughs> I can't take this abuse. And uh, so it was. It was an interesting thing because we've had about a hundred people cancel out of ten thousand. It, it was. It was just a god thing. So we went from sales to now we're logistics and production to PR management, um, and we have to. We send the truckers out with a camera, and every one of them they're taking pictures of people smiling in their golf carts. We're posting them on the website. We're showing the factory. We had to like 
you know, prove to people that this was actually happening, you know, and uh, little by little, the money would be released. And then we ran into some other staff who's along yeah. the way on production. On production, sure. But Colin, I think, ended up stepping in on the sales side or on the uh, managing the, all, all these people who are pissed by putting a sales program together where he would call <laughs> up proactively and let them know where it was. And you know, we're trying to be as brutally honest as we could, explain them the whole PayPal situation. So give them an accurate projection of what was going to be delivered, but then tell them we wanted, uh, when it comes, we want to make sure it's exactly how you want it. Yeah. So I had a sales team that understood the deal. Hey, you guys have thick skin. You're going to get yelled at. You're going to hear names you've never heard of before, you know, <laughs> and you just take it and just apologize. And, but the real reason was, yeah, Brian, I totally get it. Listen, the important thing is your car is you know, slated for production soon. We want it to come just the way you want it. Your buddy got a ball washer and a lift kit. You know, are you thinking a wood grain dash or a stereo? And so we make another couple million bucks just on sales, but it was a touch point for, for us to be able to reach. You got to tell the six person uh, roof story as part of this. Con. So, that was, I so we, we, By the way, I swear in your previous sale or your previous life, you were a copier salesman. Man. I am <laughs> totally convinced. So uh, we, we are realizing that as these uh, containers are coming from China, they take, 30 days, some of these long tops for a six seater, they become cracked and we're frustrated and they keep breaking. And we found a local manufacturer out of uh, California and they promised they can hit that deadline. So we're like, okay, we're not going to order tops from China. We're going to order for the six seaters. We're going to order them from you guys. Well, they missed them. They missed the mark. So we're like, okay, we've got cars with no tops. What do we do? So we're selling four seaters and six seaters. So we came up with a pretty, pretty clever idea. You know, normally you got the windshield here and, and, and the roof was really would, would overhang. And so we said, let's take a four seat top, push it back, you know, and, and yeah, the back seat's still without shade, but it looks kind of, you know, sporty. 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 And yeah. so we put together a, a brochure and we said, hey, you guys have been so patient. We're going to give you the sport model and extra cost. It comes with a bikini top and, you know, wood grain dash, which costs us $20 and a, and a, and a, a fuzzy dice or something. And uh, and so people would call and say, you know, because we had some of the, the larger tops on hand. So some people would call and go, hey, I, I didn't get the sport top. What, what happened? Like, oh, I'm so sorry. So they'd be pissed that they didn't get the bikini top. And then other That's people, when you know what you're doing is working. Yeah, totally. And then there was a few that went. I know what you guys are doing. I don't want that top. <laughs> like, no, we'll wait for the big top. We're like, fine. So it, it was it was constantly uh, working with people, you know, and people are the same. It's just managing expectations, offering them trust and respect. And But really, it was we earned our money that year. We really did. The sales was fun. But then we're like, how do we get, you know, uh, 12 cars in a truck. Well, the, the, the trucker would have to take the back step off. So rather than 10, now it's 12 cars. Well, that, that was a 20% improvement. And, and, uh, well, how do we get them off the truck? They got, these guys are used to backing up to Walmart to a loading dock and driving out. Now, now they have to put a ramp on. So we'd make a ramp for every, for every truck. And it was too expensive to ship them back. So our sales guys would, would call the last customer and say, Hey, good news. You get a deal on ramps today. You know? And so we try and sell the ramps to that individual. And it, it was just a, um, it was a case study and like anything that could go wrong went wrong. And it was just absolute fun and perseverance watching everybody shine. And, and, and Rob logistically would, he Google mapped the whole thing and basically was like, we don't want a truck stopping in Albuquerque on their way to Miami. 
you know, you send the, the truck straight to Miami with a full load. That way, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not driving empty. And um, it, it took a lot of coordination, but it was, it was a rich experience. So, like that whole year must have been just a blur. My God, like, yeah. What did you start? It was really, really? you know, Collins often said it was kind of, uh, you know, uh, building an airplane while you're flying it thirty thousand feet in the air. It was really so many different business elements, having to learn logistics, having to, you know, uh, customer scientific, customer management. But I think the, and then they came in, you know, 50 pieces when they landed. So we had, you know, an assembly plant out in California. Oh my gosh. So it was just, you know, coordinating the batteries and the suppliers. And, you know, uh, did you guys bake, like, how did you figure out the cost of goods with all that stuff <laughs> to, the, to make sure that you had enough money left over when it was all said and done? Yeah. You know, I think it was around a 30, 35% net margin on it. So we, we had room That's in there. Awesome. Yeah, we had room in there. And I remember talking to a couple of buddies about this idea ahead of time. They're like, no, I, I wouldn't do that. You know, it sounds like too crazy. The government can change their mind and you've got a bunch of half-built golf carts. And and uh, I t- told my wife, I said, we're going to have to probably cash in the form, you know, the IRA money. And she said, do you have to take all of it? And I said, it's not that much anyway. We, we got to, you know, we got to swing for the fences. So. We literally had no money, and uh, so there was there was um, there were moments of, of uh, probably fear, but I think it was really enthusiasm because we do well when we're not on a track, when we're running hard, and we know what's in front of us, and we got a baton in our hand, and we felt like we can win this race. And the benefit of having such a short selling season is the customers were motivated; they had to pull the trigger, but no other competition could jump in. And so, easy go club car, massive billion dollar companies well positioned to do this. And one of the, another manufacturer was like, ah, I see what you guys did, you know, re- reverse engineering, you know, getting the higher credit because ours was a $6,500 credit, not a $4,000 credit. Well, that, that was basically our profit to be able to sell these at a, at a break even to the customer. So. Yeah. I, I, and I think it was a, uh, it was a kind of a, it, it, when you're at your lowest, this kind of came as a slow pitch from heaven. Like, it was not rocket science. It just happened to be that our experience, you know, uh, in 2000 and 99 and 2000 was a perfect setup for us. Like we'd been fortunate enough to already have one run at this and had spent countless wasted conversations of, gosh, we could have done that again. We could have done it so much better, you know, kind of about, you know, and then all of a sudden the slow pitch comes when we're dead broke. It was just crazy. And it's a second swing at the pinata. And it's two things. It's one, like, I will fight and claw as long as I have air in my, my lungs to, 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 to make it, to win. But yet I know I really don't control anything. So it's, it's, it's two very interesting paradigms going, okay, God is sovereign and it, it's, it's, you know, God's fortune or God's calamity, whatever is, uh, happens to be upon me. But it's, it's having a, a hearty gratitude no matter what. And isn't it so true guys? Like I, I got to share a story. So one of the, one of the, you know, every two week, you know, 240,000 apparel we had and uh, it, like more times than I can count, we couldn't figure out how we're going to pay it. Never missed it. But one of the times guys, we were, uh, my dad and I are walking to the building and it's like seven we We're like, we are totally after it to this, this week. It's Wednesday. You know, we got 24 more hours to get the, to get the money. We're like 50 grand short. We walk in, this hawk flies up and then lands right on the handicap sign as my dad and I are walking into the building. We're like, 
huh, I get the goosebumps as I'm telling it right now. Walk in, our CFO is like, hey guys, your customer from 10 years ago called, he sold his building you put a lien on for the copiers and 80 grand got wired into our account. <laughs> Wow. What a like story. zero chance. Yeah. Zero chance. You can build a plan on that, but you just go, we got another week. <laughs> I know. Got, got, got a little bit more air in the tank. A buddy of mine that was really a mentor during, during the decline, he, he took me out to lunch one day and he said, uh, do you think God wants you to be, uh, to have wealth? I was like, I've never, I've never thought about that. I, I said, I, I think I have a knack for it. And, uh, he took me to kind of an obscure, you know, portion of scripture where the children of Israel had neglected God's house and their house was good. And he basically said, you're going to reap a harvest, but I'm going to, I'm going to burn your crop. I'm going to put holes in your bags. Like, and it was this total new realization that if God doesn't want you to have it, it's not going to happen. And so it took the, it took uh, pressure off. Mm. I'm still going to fight with everything in me to to win and do everything I can. But you, you realize that, you know, right time, right place, Blind luck. We also realized that, cl- that windows of, of opportunity literally can close like that. This was one of them. Uh, nine out of 10 guys might have talked themselves out of it. Just say, that's ah, too risky. Mm-hmm. There's too many things going on. So I, I think we've learned to stay in our lane. And obviously, as you build more, you, you maybe you risk less. But I think when it is something that you have the capacity to do, you swing for it. And, and that's, that's the game changer that creates potentially generational wealth, you know? What do, when you guys are going through these peaks and valleys, what are like um, some of your foundational principles that keep you grounded? Um, interested in what you have to say. Uh, I would say that that's a great question. Um, I think the the recognition that everybody goes through it. Either you're you're coming out of a storm, it's the calm after the storm, or the you know a storms brewing in life, and it's not all financial. You know, we could get a cancer diagnosis tomorrow and it's like, ah, it's healthy one day and then dead three weeks later. Yeah, like you hear those stories. So I think it's an eternal perspective. It's the recognition that life's a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, Rob's right. You know, we watched our dad pass away and he did it with dignity and the highest level of integrity of any guy I've ever met. He's got 16 grandkids sitting at his bedside, literally. And he's breathing his last and he's blessing each one and praying for him is like, wow, you know, there's no like, uh, I wish I had spent another few days at the office doing more surgeries and making more money. You know, it, it was at Howard Hughes when asked how much money is enough. He said just $1 more, you know, I mean, it, it, there's never enough. And I think the recognition that in life, things that you think are going to satisfy you really don't bring fulfillment. They're fun for a while. And yes, having wealth, creates opportunities, you get to travel and do stuff. But at the end of the day, why is it that you walk into the grocery store and look at the newsstand and see, you know, everybody with the most fame and wealth and fortune, their kids in drug rehab, they're committing suicide in the National Choir, whatever it is. And there's got to be some indication, like, am I chasing after the right thing? Like, we're wired to do that. We're wired to, you know, take our skill set and, and apply it. And so we still do that, but I think we do it with a better perspective. Probably a better why. It, it, it's the why and what's driving you. And so I think the, like Colin touched on, I'd echo all of that. I mean, I think you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive. And so playing the court. <laughs> so, so what are you focused on? Why are you doing it? Uh, that's, have, that's, that's good, guys. Have a pur- 
purpose. And so most people don't know their purpose. Yeah. So I I think I agree with you guys. Isn't it crazy? Like, you know, you, you guys heard my workshop and it's like, you know, I, I could sit there for literally weeks and talk about mechanical stuff. Right. But like, why are we doing this? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, like it, we can talk about valuations and this and that and the other thing, but like, what are we doing here? And so like, um, actually before I, I ask my next question, uh, it's one of my favorite, um, uh, phrases, guys, uh, this guy, Naval, I can't pronounce his last name. Um, He's a, a, so insightful, a big Silicon Valley guy, but he's very like stoic. And he said that like, regardless of Elon or Bezos, however much money you have, you can't buy a, a peaceful mind, healthy body or good relationships, no matter how much money you have. And I was like, that is so interesting. And that's really like, if you think about in the Vistage groups, a lot of successful people and you're like, at the end of the day, you got your own six inches between your head, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Hopefully you're all right. If you win at the office and fail at home, I think it's a, it's a sad life. You know, it really is. I, so, so I've got four well kids. Said. Rob's got five kids. You know, we work hard in part, you know, respect for, for what they have, gratitude, um, understand what your God given talent is and work hard at it. And, uh, you know, it's been fun post drive electric to kind of, as I was going to say, explain, how did you take that airplane that you were building and did you land it? Did you trade it for a different airplane or what, what was the, the idea there? You know, timing was pretty much perfect. Uh, so we landed the airplane, everything was great and, uh, delivered 10,350 something golf carts around the country. Um, so we kept Drive Electric open just basically on the service side to service existing customers you know, for, for a couple of years. Um, but right at that time, I think 2011, uh, we were low, you know, had a lot of fresh powder and left real estate and so started jumping back into real estate. That was really the bottom. We were buying stuff 2011 at the courthouse steps for. Your previous deals, what you said, Rob, right? <laughs> previous deals, but deals, I mean, you look at the con- at the history, you're buying them for less than they had sold in 1980 or 1975. Like, I mean, it was just the bottom of the market. And so I think the investor class was kind of disenchanted a little bit because they think they're buying on the decline in, in nine and then 10, and it's still dropping. And so there was really no money on the street. So we, we did, uh, we did pause for a moment. Uh, we took the kids to safaris and, you know, traveled to Europe and, and, and really, I don't know, enriched ourselves in, in some material way a little bit just to create experiences. For Get them. caught back up from the days yeah. of, uh, the ramen and the bikes, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My wife can get her nails done now and, you know, get her hair colored and that sort of thing, you know, stuff you, you went without. But, um, I, I think again, same thing as the, providential, you know, drive electric opportunity, we're now loaded with cash and we can enter the market and we're buying distressed properties at the lowest point. And so we did some trading, we buy and hold. And so for the last, I guess, 12 years, we've kind of worked together with Townsend Kane and we probably bought over a thousand houses, you know, uh, 250 million of, you know, of value. And, and, and we have a couple hundred rentals now. Um, probably the, the biggest game changer in the last five years is, is kind of going, okay, now I'm 53, Rob's 55 recently and going, okay, suddenly retirement's not that far away. And, uh, we had some 401k and IRA money, but, but I think again, Rob's foresight of going, 
self-directed mechanisms to be able to have checkbook control to create a Roth 401k that's after tax dollars that you can get debt leverage on and be able to buy real estate and, uh, and, and create wealth within that, that you know, domain. Why don't you dive a little bit into that column? Because, you know, I think, you know, when you, when you guys saw the workshop, we talked about principle two and the business is such a huge percentage of the wealth of the entrepreneurs for the most part, but then we forget of the diversification, but because I think of the lack of control, like we're putting into the markets and it's all over the place, but there's this mechanism like you're talking about that there's interesting ways for the business owner to also be able to shovel some money away and then have a little bit more control. You want to dive into that a little bit more? I'll let Rob take that one. Uh, you can give us step by step. Yeah. So, so if you own a business, uh, no more than uh, 50%, so 50% or less of a business that has employees, there you have no employees, you can't own uh, more than 50% of a business that already has employees. Then you can set up what's called a solo 401k. It's so super simple. There's a number of groups online that do it. Uh, Neighbors is one that uh, sets them up for my kids, N A B E R S. Uh, IRA, it, it's a 401k, but it, it yeah. Um, so, for example, I think in 2016, we set ours up. So that year, the limit was 18,000. So we each put in 18,000. So here we have a, and then uh, my 401k and his 401k funded one LLC. So that's our retirement plan LLC. Got it. We have 50% each in our 401ks. But with 36,000 in there, uh, we've grown it to multiple seven-figure number by uh, buying real estate because you can use leverage. You can't personally guarantee the leverage, so you can use non-recourse money. But I have friends in other businesses. So every business entrepreneur is different, but they come across opportunities that oftentimes can be tailored. Like if you come across a new partnership you're going to set up, you can put that mm -hmm. in your 401k. Uh, like a new location or a new whatever. So th there's opportunities that different entrepreneurs have that can be directed to that self-directed. Mm -hmm. It's kind of similar, Rob. There's a, it's actually called the Rob's program yeah. <laughs> where people are buying companies yeah. with their 401k. I got a couple of clients that have done that. Yeah. Yeah. So the Rob's program uh, is a little bit different in that uh, you're buying. Uh, actually, I think you can start a business doing that too, right? With the Rob's program. Yeah. That's a little bit above my, of awareness, but I believe so, depending on the startup cost. I don't know exactly some of the nuances, but yeah, there's some just crazy flexibility that, crazy that flexibility. most people aren't aware of. But you know, I mean, it's the same 401k pension plan rules of the brown forever. I remember my dad's office as a doctor, you know, they would do hard money loans or, you know, buy properties or whatever. But it, it's only in the last couple of decades that, that it's really become more popular for uh, Tom. But if somebody has mm -hmm. W-2 income, they can set up a sole proprietorship or a consulting company, something. And, and as long as you're paying that self-employment tax, you know, and, 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 you know, taking the hit, then you contribute that <clears throat> into a, uh, a self-directed plan where it does give you checkbook control. Our first deal, we had $36,000 in there and we come across a building that is a 19,000 square foot building that is, you know, a nonprofit went under and they just... They weren't thinking like an owner. They're thinking like a nonprofit. It didn't benefit any of them. They just want to get rid of it. And they're selling it for like 30 bucks a foot or something. And this is like a, you know, kind of a drug rehab behavioral health. You know, you've got the grandfathered zoning in a neighborhood. You'd never be able to get it. Nobody wants that mm -hmm. in the backyard. So we end up 
buying it. We find private money. You know, uh, I put six hundred thousand dollars in. We paid six hundred and fifty. So we're we're, we're six twenty. I think we're barely you know have enough there. And then we have a built in tenant. And so I mean that building's probably worth four million bucks right now. You know, and, and that's so, so awesome. Yeah, and so it, it can't be an active business. We can't commingle funds. And so it is a it's a patient money thing. As the cash flows come in, we'll buy more properties um, and, and hold them. And um, it, it's been yeah, we hold deal. properties for at least a year. But our goal is to uh, flip only enough properties that we need to live off of. Uh, and any other- I was going to ask. Well, I was going to ask. What are you guys solving for right now with this new perspective of the peaks and valleys you've gone through? Yeah, leverage. Um, I would say we we had a conservative approach towards leverage. It's extremely more conservative now. Like I think we probably two thirds of our properties are free and clear, and then we have leverage on some properties. Uh, but you know, I, I think it was a hard lesson to learn in '08 that you know leverage cuts both ways. And so I think there's a place for leverage, but we're, we're definitely uh, just given our experience, probably our temperance is, is a little bit more conservative at this point. I think the market's changed a little bit as well. Um, there's some uncertainty out there. You know, is there is there a commercial calamity that's going to happen? I was going to ask you, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but like, I think you guys follow ITR. Maybe you do a little bit because of uh, Vistage, but like, you know, the commercial real estate market, it's probably screaming a little bit of uh, the same kind of flavors that you guys went through in 08. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you imagine owning a 10 story class B office building in the middle of the Holy shit, yeah, you guys. Right. I got, I, I saw keys back to the bank. That's going to be some blood in the water. We, oh. we, we do single family. We do some uh, interesting things. We've got that building we talked about. We've got a fraternity house with 25 bedrooms. You know, you know, anything that kind of makes sense. Um, assisted living, you know, on the real estate side, um, memory care. Um, but I, I think part of our strategy is to, you know, we're, we're kind of buying and, and holding properties that have existing debt on them. And, you know, we'll buy those subject to the loans at three or 4% that you know, consumers might have. And we disclose it to the lender that what we're doing. And, and uh, it, it enables you to kind of informally assume a loan, you know, that has a, mm. a, a low, you know, percentage rate. And, um, but we're being, we're being cautious. We think there's trouble ahead in our little micro market. It's pretty healthy. You know, real estate is underbuilt. Um, I do so, think the residential real estate side is a little bit different than the, the, what the calamity that I should come in for, for the uh, commercial. I know. Isn't it so interesting, Rob, how everybody thinks it's going to happen again the same way? And I'm like, no, the, the, the quote unquote crash is the fact that no one can afford their houses. That's the actual issue, right? It versus like, there's not going to be a drop because there's not these subprime loans. It's just not the same. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, it, people who are lucky enough to have a two and a half percent mortgage are not wanting to get that up. They're going to keep that house. They're going to keep that mortgage. I know I got 2.85. If I sold my house, I'd have to buy a house half the value of my current house. It doesn't make any sense. It keeps the supply low though. And you relatively know. little inventory has been built since 08. Like mm-hmm. from the pace, it was overbuilt in 08, but uh, the amount of inventory that's been built really is, it was much less in population growth. Uh, and each market's different, but certainly for Arizona. So I think there's a structural undersupply of residential inventory. Now costs are, construction costs are up and they can't deliver new product below that cost. So it's kind of another support for the floor. So 
<laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? And yeah. I'm curious, like you know, you guys mentioned retirement, and uh, you guys don't appear to me as being people that are just going to like hang out on a chair and do nothing all day long. <laughs> so, like, what does it mean to you as you? How are you thinking about your time and what you're doing with it differently as you're moving forward? Yeah, I think you know, like Colin said, it, we took a small break after Drive Electric. Uh, my kids were still in high school and younger, and so I kind of wanted to front load a lot of our trips before they got older. Climbed Kilimanjaro, went on a number of mission trips to Africa, and uh, cool. great experiences. And so I think uh, that is still a priority for me to continue to have family trips and be in a position to be able to do that and, and, uh, and provide that for my family as it is now growing. My kids are getting married. Do you see yourself kind of always doing some deals and hanging out, like, Absolutely. you know, mingling? Yeah. Like, what, why, why not, right? I don't see that as work. It's like, I mean, that's right. I think the tasks will be different, but like you're, you gave a workshop on, on, on the different ways of, you know, disposition of a company, right? You sell the competitor, do you, do you go private, you know, uh, private equity group or whatever. But this, um, this through entrepreneur was kind of an interesting idea. And I thought, man, my kids, I've got three boys and a girl and, and they're in real estate finance and doing things. One's going to get an MBA. And I thought, I would love to have a small family office where we really tee those things up, you know, cause oh, my, fun. my guys, boys are, um, are seasoned and they're, they're growing and they're learning uh, under really great mentors right now, working for companies like Trammell Pro and, JLL and, you know, they're going to learn much more than, than I could teach them. And so I think bringing new, new skill sets to the table, uh, I look forward to that, but I think retirement is doing what you want when you want with the people you love. And, and, um, so I've got one grandbaby and it's like, I'm looking at his video all the time, you know, cause the, the camera, you know, they, they gave me a link. And so I think it becomes more about that. That's awesome guys. Uh, my, my dad just moved f uh, four minutes away from me. And like, it's so funny. Cause like, you know, I don't know if you guys remember the vision wheel that we were doing. We were talking about like where the business fits in your life and people are always like family harmony. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's, I can only, I'm, I'm projecting. So you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but like there are people like if you enjoy your family where you just want to talk about business, it's like, what else are we going to talk about? It's fun stuff to talk about. Like versus like, we're not, we're not, I'm not a sports family. So like we, like for years, I had nothing to talk about with my dad. He wasn't doing anything. I was just like, I don't know what to talk about with you. And now he's back in the game and he's hustling. And it's just like, Hey, this is now fun. Who cares? Like we got nothing else to talk about. I just don't see us ever bullying pulling out of that, you know, because I, I think right. a, quick, a quick demise, you know, this when you begin to die, you know, but we, we yeah. loved it. And, and I think teaching others and mentoring them and uh, as part of giving back and trying to help other people get where they want to go. Absolutely. That's awesome. Hey guys, I, I, this has been an absolute blast. I'm glad that we got this to finally work and uh, we'll have to give Wyatt a big thank you. Um, two last questions. Um, so I like to ask people what the word intentional means because the name of the show, you know, that's a big proponent of uh, a big component of what we're doing. So no particular order. What is the definition of intentional for each of you guys? What comes to mind for me is uh, living life on purpose, you know, um, and it is uh, oftentimes doing what's hard, but what's right. And uh, delayed gratification is, you know, it's a learned skill. And everybody wants the shiny object in front of them and they don't realize, wow, if, if I delay that, I get 10 shiny objects down the road. And, and it's a patient, wise person to kind of, you know, grow into that. So 
think intentional is is oftentimes not doing what feels good, but it's the, it's the right choice. Yeah, I think that's good. I think being anchored, you know, what we're we're all anchored to something. So I think it's easy for life to blow you off course or circumstances to distract you. And so I think it's what, what, for me, it's what anchors me. So I think family. I like, and that. I like it. Guys, uh, if the listeners want to reach out, how do they follow you? How do they reach out? What's the best place? Our website is townsandcane.com, T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D-K-A-N-E.com. Best way to reach us is through our website. You can look at our profiles and phone numbers there. Rob and Colin, man, you guys, this has been a lot of fun. So I appreciate you guys' time. Thank you Absolutely. so much, Ryan. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Take Ryan. care. I just love those guys. I honestly have got so much from my conversations with them. They're so vulnerable. They're willing to share the ups and downs that we all experience, but sometimes we don't see the valleys very often in a lot of the online material, the publications, and they're willing to share the ups and downs. And I think one thing that we can all learn from them is perspective. We got to have perspective when we're on the top of the mountain and we got to have perspective when we're in the bottom of the valley. And I think the perspective, it's kind of like one of those, uh, one of those charts where you see both sides, you're kind of messing with your eyes and then it snaps together. I think that perspective happens when we can sync up what we're dealing with against our long-term goals and ambitions, because how do we know whether the peak is really high or the valley is really low if we have no context? If we don't know where we're going, then it's very difficult and we can be overwhelmed with the valley or overwhelmed and very euphoric with the uh, with the peaks. So if you want to start building your perspective and building a framework for decision-making on how to tie your long-term goals and your short-term decisions together, Go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit. You jump right into the five principles to help you understand how to get that clearly identified outcome and what purposeful action you might need. And then you can understand how to grade yourself and rate yourself on how to, while you're running the company like a financial asset, that is going to be the biggest vehicle to create the options, the wealth, and the impact that you want. Because the more wealth you have and the, the more valuable the company, the more options you're going to have. So I really hope you enjoyed this interview with the Riley Brothers. If you're ready for another episode, uh, stay tuned for next week where I'm going to be interviewing John Rodriguez, where he's going to be walking us through his family transition that did not go as well as he wanted to. And if there's one individual I uh, have found that has a very similar parallel path as me, it is John Rodriguez. And he's sharing and being vulnerable about his family story and what he's doing now about all the things that went the wrong way, I would say, in his journey and how we then have a discussion about what should be necessary in this industry of advice on value growth and exit planning, like what the hell is exit planning actually? And then how do you grow value? How do you surround yourself with a team that actually knows what they're doing? So then when you can focus on what you do best, there's a lot of meat in next week's episode. So I appreciate everybody tuning in and I will see you next week.